few months ago, I tried to start doing a thing in the morning where I would meditate. I know that uh, meditation has all kinds of benefits that are physical, mental, but also spiritual. Uh, it's a, a form of prayer if, if you're doing it that way. And um, I just wanted to make it a regular thing. What I found is I'm bad at meditating. I'm just bad at it. I'm not good at focusing my brain. I'm easily distracted. Um, and so what has happened is I, I've started to get up early and I get myself, my body in a comfortable position. Um, and then from there, I close my eyes. And what I try to do is take deep breaths in and deep breaths out. And when I do that, I try to clear my thoughts from my head just to kind of and just only focus on my breathing. And I'll do that for 45 seconds to five minutes. I can't tell because I'm not looking at the clock. It's just a feel thing, right? Once I've cleared the thoughts, I'm ready for the next thing. Because then the second half of it, I take something that I've read before I started. So maybe it's a verse of scripture. Maybe it's an excerpt from a book or a commentary or a thought. And then I continue my slow breathing. But I breathe in the thought. Like I actually, sometimes I'll actually whisper it to myself out loud, which is weird when you're inhaling. Have you ever tried to talk, like inhale talking? Like, I'm talking like this. Like that sounds very strange. But then I will also breathe it out. And I do that slowly for, like I said, 45 seconds to five minutes. I can't really tell. The eyes are closed. And when I'm ready to finish, I kind of settle, slow my breathing back down. And then I'm ready to go. What happens is... Um, Michelle and I don't have kids, but there is two of us in the house, and there's all kinds of noises outside. There's uh, wind chimes. There's the dishwasher. Any little noise, and all of a sudden, I'm completely distracted, and my thoughts that I was trying to clear are back in there again. Or sometimes I think I'm almost there, and I'm breathing, and I'm like, I have to go to the bank this morning. Like It's, it's like I have a hard time clearing that out. And so, or sometimes I sleep in too late or sometimes the schedule doesn't allow. So really what I thought would be like an every morning thing has become like a once or twice a week thing. But it's beneficial when I do it. Like I can tell that I'm learning. And sometimes there's uh, thoughts or verses or commentary that uh, stick with me all day. Like I'll meditate and then the whole day it's like it's lodged in, it's like lodged somewhere in my bones, right? I, I, I'm, I'm feeling that I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing it. I'm living it out. I'm reminded of it. Uh, sometimes it doesn't last. Like it's gone by the time I get in the shower. Like I meditate, I'm done. I get in the shower. I've already forgotten what I meditated on. So it's really sometimes a crapshoot. But there was one morning, and I can tell you it was the beginning of December. Uh, so about two and a half months ago where I was meditating and I was reading from an excerpt of a book called Wonder by Abraham Joshua Heschel. And there was this quote that got me, and I meditated on it. And the quote was something, it, it should be on the screen, I'm, I, I have it mostly memorized. It says, our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. To wake up each morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. And that last line, 
to be spiritual is to be amazed. I, there was something there. There was meat on that bone, right? What to be to be amazed is to be spirit, spiritual is to be so that insinuates a lot of things and there's a lot to unpack and what does that mean? And that week I had a meeting with Pastor Greg. It was our preaching team meeting and he was talking about how he's going to be on sabbatical. He started this week. He's gone for five weeks. He said, you know, uh, how are we going to fill this? Should it be, you know, is there a series? And I said, well, if there's a series, I will tell you this thing, this quote, this idea is stuck in me. And he said, let's roll with it. And so for two and a half months, our preaching team has been preparing for these next five weeks in this series that we're calling Wonder. And in this series, we're going to tackle a handful of things. One, why should I be in awe and wonder of God? Two, what keeps me from being in awe and wonder of God? Three, if I'm in awe of God, what does that look? How would people be able to see me and go, oh, he... He's in a state of wonder or awe or he's amazed. To be spiritual is to be amazed. How does it look to be amazed? Like are you just constantly like, whoa, right? Is, it, is that what it is? How does that play itself out? And then how does it impact my Christian faith? How does that impact my walk with God? To be amazed. And so we're going to take the next five weeks and we're going to look at amazement and wonder. In awe. I'll start with three quick stories. Uh, my first church that I ever worked at was in Jacksonville, Florida, and they had a ton of programs throughout the week or in the middle of the week, but they put them all on Wednesday. So every non-Sunday program was on Wednesday. So every Bible study, every youth choir, every student band, every committee meeting, every program they had was on Wednesday. And then what they would do is they would have a family love center, much like our connection center out here. And they would have a big meal for everybody that came for Wednesday night stuff. And uh, we had a hospitality director at, a, at that church. And she oversee, oversaw all the meals for Wednesday. And so you'd go through cafeteria style to get your meals. However, drinks were self-serve. And we were in the South. So obviously there were two choices. Sweet tea and pink lemonade. Those were your health choices at our church Wednesday night dinner. And it was self-serve. So you come with the spigot and you pour yourself out something. And there were people of all ages there. Older couples, uh, single people, youth, families, young kids, older kids, you name it. It ran the gamut demographically. And it was this big room and it was a lot of, it was good energy. You know, it was like the kind of energy you're like, ah, it's, it's good to be around all this. But sometimes there's some crazy energy because there was some toddlers and babies and whatnot. I, there was one specific day. I was sitting next to a round table, and there was a, a mom whose uh, – the husband hasn't, hadn't gotten there yet. She had three kids, a baby, a toddler, and then a, a little older toddler. And the middle-aged child obviously wanted more to drink. And so she finally acquiesced and said, just go get your own drink. And so there's this five-ish-year-old kid that grabs his cup, and he runs up to the pink lemonade dispenser. And he starts to fill his cup. And toddlers don't exactly have portion control, Right? So he just pours, 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 and gets it so full. It's the thing where, like, you look at the glass, and there's actually, like, a curve over the top of the glass. You know what I'm talking about? I've, I didn't know what it was called this morning. Somebody at the first service said it's called surface tension. I learned something today. 
All right? So there's a surface tension. I'm not going to explain how it works because I have no idea. But there's liquid over the glass. So now this, there's this toddler. And I remember that day he started to walk. He had to walk very slowly, right? And it'd be very steady. And if I can do my best impression of this little toddler, it was, it was this. Whoa. 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 He was so entertained by how this liquid was not totally going over the side. So much so that he got to his table. Whoa. And he just kept, he took a couple laps around the whole place until he eventually spilled it. Right. But he was in that moment. He just, he didn't want to sit down. He was just, whoa, look at how this is. It's like jello. But you know, he was blown away. He didn't want to sit down. There's a story I told uh, a couple weeks ago about uh, in Luke chapter eight, when I preached, it was a, a demon possessed man that Jesus met in the Gerasenes. And this man was known for being a crazy person. He didn't wear clothes. He lived in a cave. Many times he was chained up because he was a danger to the community. And he broke the chains. Like he, he was possessed by demons. And they wanted nothing to do with him. He was estranged. And Jesus came face to face with him in Luke chapter 8. And he saw that there were demons possessing his body. And he cast the demons out into the nearby lake. And so the people from the community came out. And they saw this man, and he was dressed. He was wearing clothes for the first time in years. And he was like seated, crisscross applesauce, at the feet of Jesus, in his right mind, totally fine. And the community was blown away, and they went back. And this man, in verse 38 of that story, I won't read the whole story, but verse 38, it says that the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away. This guy had his life changed. This amazing moment happened where he went from tortured, oppressed, you know, thrown out of the community to now he's normal. His life has been changed. This is amazing to happen. He said, just let me follow you. Let me be. I'll be the guy that does your laundry. I'll fluff your pillow at night. Oh, however I can be on the team, just let me be with you. And Jesus said, no, go back to the town and tell your stories to the people here what happened to you. There's another story that happens in Matthew chapter 17. If you are a uh, Bible studier, Bible scholar, it's known as the transfiguration. This is, Jesus has been walking with 12 disciples for a year and a half, two years, somewhere in that neighborhood. And in their travels, the disciples had seen Jesus heal people. They had seen him feed people. He, they had seen him argue with Pharisees and argue in a way that they had never seen they had seen him do acts of love and mercy that had never been seen before. The, Jesus was the real deal at this point. Jesus takes three of the disciples and they go to the mountaintop. I'll read the first three verses of chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up high on a mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. There he was like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Side note, what I think is funny about this story is that Matthew is the one that's writing this gospel. So Matthew wasn't there. So as he's writing the gospel about Jesus, he's talking to Peter, James, and John. And he's, they're like, okay, so we went on this mountain, and his hair was like the sun. And Matthew's like, guys, people are going to read this. 
Like, like what, what do I actually say? His clothes were like, like bright white. He's like, right, guys, this is not going to have any credibility. You know, like he's getting this from them. So whatever's happened on the mountain, Peter, James, and John are seeing Jesus in a new way, kind of a miraculous way. And these guys are of Jewish descent. So they're heroes of their faith were Moses and Elijah. Now they see Moses and they see Elijah and there's Jesus. And it's kind of this almost unbelievable story. And they're blown away. And in it, Peter says, Lord, it, it is good for us to be here, which is like my favorite. It is good for us to be here. That we should all say that whenever we come. It's good for us to be here, right? And then he continues, if you wish, I will put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What's he saying? We should hang out. This is in, this is awesome. Let's just let's just be in this moment. You ever been in a moment where you're like, I don't want to leave this moment. This is amazing. Three stories. Pink lemonade. Demon-possessed man, now in his right mind. The transfiguration where Jesus where Peter wants to hang out on the mountain. When you are in awe, when you are amazed, you're drawn to the thing that you're in awe of. You want to get closer to the thing that you're amazed by. When you are in a state of wonder, you want to stay in that state. It's the reason when I'm at the Connection Center, and some of you are grandparents, and I would bet you that more than 50% of you grandparents, if I've caught you in the Connection Center, will have pulled out your phone and showed me a video of your grandkid doing something that seems mundane but is pretty crazy to you because it's your grandkid. You talk about the things you care about. You brag on the things that are incredible to you. You are drawn to the things that have amazed you. And so if we are following a God who is awesome, a God who is wonderful, a God that is amazing, then what does that look like? If you came today and you have to be argued into uh, our side of believing that God is awesome, you came to the wrong sermon, maybe another day. But for this sermon, uh, we're going to under or we're gonna operate under the uh, supposition that God's awesome. He's doing awesome works. He's, he's doing awesome things. He's amazing. He's always been amazing. And in fact, uh, in, in the Old Testament, it was a key part of all of their writings. Anytime you would read someone who's writing a psalm or anybody, any story that's being told in, in uh, the first five books in the Torah or in Job or any of the prophets, are, most often they will tell the story and then they will talk about how everyone was amazed by what God had done. It was a regular part of what they did. It was almost all of the psalms. There's one psalm in particular I'm going to pick out. I wanted to piggyback. Pastor Greg just finished a series called um, Five Prayers That Will Change Your Life. And he picked five psalms out. There's 18 other psalms where it talks about the amazing works of God, the wonderful God that we follow, how God deserves our awe. There's one particular I want to pick out, Psalm 65. It's going to be up on the screen. I'll read through it. It's, it's written by David, and it's in the context of they've gathered after most of the people who are agricultural have brought their crops, their first fruits for a time of worship. And they're uh, praising God because he's provided the rain and all the things that are needed for those crops. And so they come and they, this is the song. It says, praise away to you, our God in Zion. To you, our vows will be fulfilled. You who answer prayer, to you, all people will come. 
When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stifled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. The whole earth is filled with awe of your wonders. Where morning dawns, where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. The whole earth is filled with awe of your wonders. The Jewish tradition is better than the American Christian at not just looking at how awesome God is in this moment, but over generations. When the Hebrews would come and they would, they would uh, worship God, they would worship because of what he had done generations before, how he had, I mean, it was, it was centuries later and they were praising God for how he had fulfilled his promise to Abraham. I don't even know who, who's five generations ago in my family, but they're celebrating it. And so sometimes it's, uh, we, we, we forget things quickly as evidenced by the fact that I forgot what I was meditating on when I got in the shower, right? And so we, when, we forget, when we have that short of a memory, it's hard to be amazed by what God did in 1989. But God's working in 1989 impacts my life now. And if we can get a clear view of what he's doing, it's amazing. And the psalmists knew that. They put it in almost every psalm. There was always a section in, in, in a series of psalms where even if they were complaining, they would have a section where they would worship God for his awesome wonders, his amazing actions, all the things that he is and all the things that he does. I want to point out a Pastor Gregism. He's not here, so he's, it's, I asked him if I could make fun of him. I said, do you want me to do it at all five or just in one? He said, spread them out. I said, okay. I, I almost hesitated to, tie, to bring this up because now you all are going to recognize it when he does it. But Pastor Greg will read a scripture or he'll read some sort of commentary. And when he finishes reading, he'll go, wow. You know what I'm talking about? He'll like read a thing and he goes, wow. And it's genuine because he's actually wowed by the thought of whatever it is that he's bringing to us. It doesn't have to be a Pastor Greg-ism. It could be just an us-ism. We should be wowed by God regularly, which would suppose that we recognize God's works when they're happening as awesome. And oftentimes we don't do that. So today, I want to look at three, uh, three things that can keep us from seeing God work and seeing him as awesome in our everyday lives. Uh, any Fans of Friday Night Lights here. Friday Night Lights, the show. Like the tagline, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay, thank you. I was like, am I amongst my people? I am amongst my people. Okay. If we have clear eyes and full hearts, we see God for what he's doing. We see what he's doing amongst us, and we're in awe, and then theoretically we're drawn to that. But there are times where we don't have clear eyes, that our lenses need to be cleaned so that we can see the amazing things that God is doing. If you have your Bibles, I'll have you turn to Matthew chapter, no, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 15. And there's, there's a story that you know well, so you might start reading and go, I know this one by heart. 
But I want to point out just three uh, ways that our lenses get dirtied and we don't have the clear eyes to see the work that God's doing. In Luke chapter 15, the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus for dining with sinners. Who are you associating with, Jesus? And so Jesus tells three stories. He tells one about a sheep that was lost. He tells another one about a coin that was lost and then found. And he tells the story that I'm going to go through about a lost son, or we know it well as the prodigal son. The story goes like this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. In that day, if you had an inheritance from your father, you didn't get it till he died. And so if someone were to come to the father early and say, give me, my, give me what I'm due now, he's essentially saying, I kind of wish you were dead. I mean, it's insulting that the son would do this. But he did this because he was entitled. The first thing that keeps us from seeing God work amongst us and be in awe of it is entitlement. I deserve this thing. I'm entitled to this thing that was taken from me. I should get, I should get that. This thing at work that I wanted, it was given to somebody else. That was, I, they didn't deserve that. I deserve that. I don't deserve to be talked to by my kids like that. I don't deserve my parents doing that to me. I don't, I deserve this lane. If you, if you come into this lane in front of me, I deserve that. So, you know, hell may rain down on you in the form of a, a honk or a finger. I deserve, I'm entitled to this thing or this goodness. This son felt entitled. And entitlement will keep you from seeing God working because entitlement is a focus on yourself. It's all about you. And maybe you're sitting here and there's something that you, if you were honest with yourself, you're like, maybe I'm acting a little bit entitled. And I'll tell you, wash that from your lens so you can have the clear eyes. Because when you are entitled, it keeps you. Like God may be working all around you and you're focused on the thing that you didn't get, right? And so God is going, I'm right here. I'm, I'm in the midst of this and you just can't see it through the lenses because you don't have clear eyes. You're entitled. The young son was entitled. We'll keep going. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all the, he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his health in wild living, which is a great phrase, wild living. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to, be a, uh, to a citizen that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me repeat that again. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. The first thing that can keep us from seeing God working in our midst, around us, and be in awe of what God's doing 
is entitlement. The second thing that can keep us from seeing what God's doing and being in awe of him is a low self-worth. Anybody out there in Eeyore? Uh, nobody cares about me. I don't, it's okay. I don't, I don't deserve, I'm not worthy. The son decides I'm not worthy to be called my father's son. A lot of times self, low self-worth will keep you from seeing the things of God because again, it's you focusing on yourself and beating yourself up and bringing yourself down and convincing yourself, telling yourself to lie that, well, I'm not worth any of this. I, it, as if your worthiness was the point. Because with that son, he didn't stop being the son. It was never about whether he was worthy or not worthy to be his father's son. Whether or not he was worthy was inconsequential. His father loved him. He was his son no matter what. His worthiness had nothing to do with it. Low self-worth is the cousin of entitlement. They look a lot different, but they're both uh, rooted in someone looking only at themselves. Either you're entitled and so you're looking, you're, you're about what you're entitled to, or you have low self-worth, so you're focusing on how, how bad you are. I've screwed up so many times. I, I, I couldn't possibly make an impact. I couldn't possibly be uh, something that somebody else cares about. I couldn't possibly measure up as if your worthiness had anything to do with it. I want to continue on once he says, I'm not worthy. Verse, uh, well, in the same verse. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Listen to the father's response. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring me the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the, the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Let's have a party. For this son of mine was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It's not about your worthiness. It's about your foundness. And the thing about being found is that you didn't do anything to be found. The two stories before where they lost the sheep and they lost the coin, that had, the fact that they were found had nothing to do with they were found. Somebody else found them. And with us, and God, it's never about are we worthy. The father ran to the son whether he was worthy or not. And he was, said, he was like, let's celebrate your foundness. So anytime you get down on yourself, anytime where you start to think, you know, I'm not good enough for fill in the blank. If you get into that Eeyore mentality, remind yourself that in this story, it was never about being worthy. It was all about being found, which you have nothing to do with. And so stop focusing on your own worth because God's doing things around you. There's a party started. There's liter In this story, there's literally a party starting. Put a robe on his back. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. Get the music going. Let's party. If you're worried about your worthiness and missing out what God's doing around you, you're not going to live in awe because you're missing it. Your lenses are clouded. 
and they need to be cleaned. Third thing, well, so you can miss what God's doing and not be in awe because you're entitled or because of your low self-worth. But here's, uh, here's where it keeps going. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. I love that analogy or like the imagery. The son, older son, like there was already a party starting. It was like he discovered it. Like, what's happening here? Who hired the DJ? What's happening? You know, like he lives, like, what's going on? Verse 26, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Servant said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Catch this, verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when your son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? And so the father says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So we can miss the work of God and be unamazed because we're entitled. And so we're focusing on ourselves. Or we can miss it because we have a low self-worth, which also we're focusing on ourselves. But the third way that sometimes we miss it is that we're too busy criticizing all the other people around us. We get a little self-righteous. We say, you know, that, that guy's, I mean, I, I'm okay, but they're really messing up. Like they're really not living the way God wants them to live. And, they, and we get critical. And just try to imagine yourself being critical of someone and also being in awe of God at the same time. They don't coexist. There's a reason why Jesus, a couple chapters earlier, lays out, judge not that you be judged, because when you do that, you miss the party that's around you. The older son is sitting literally in the middle of a party, but he can't enjoy it. The amazing thing's happening around him. He can't partake or even see it because he's too busy criticizing his brother. I'm going to... Um, I'm going to step on some thin ice. You guys let me know if I fall through, okay? Lots of churches recently have been co-opted by political parties of both sides. There are churches that have aligned themselves as either Republican or churches that have aligned themselves as Democrats. There are churches where political rallies happen and these political parties have co-opted the message of faith and added a political stance to it and pushed it as this is what the church believes. And the problem with that is that most political stances are about pointing out what somebody else is doing wrong or how somebody else is wrong. And the message of the church is that Jesus, that God loved us so much, he sent his son, put skin on, and then was crucified by his own creation, beat death, rose from the dead, and offers us 
redemption, to have relationship with him. He's throwing us a party. That's the message of the church. And when you when you co-opt it and pour a little extra of like, hey, they're wrong too, you've diluted the message and it loses its power. I'm not against people taking political stances, but don't be deceived that that's what the church is. The church is about the redeeming and unbelievable, amazing love of God for us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. Yeah? And so we miss, we miss the work that God's doing and how amazing it is because a lot of times, maybe it's not political. Political, that was a side note. But we miss it because we're pointing out someone else's faults. What it, well, look what they did. And that does not coexist with a spirit of wonder and a sense of awe. You can be entitled. You can have low self-worth. You can be critical of other people. And those three things can keep you from the one thing that the Old Testament writers knew was important for all generations, that we be in awe of all that God is and all that God does. In the next few weeks, we're going to talk through those things. What are the things that are awe-inspiring to you that God is doing? I'm going to end with a story. I got married a little less than two years ago, and uh, I realized leading up to the wedding that my parents, I don't think I'd ever seen them dance, which is fine. And they're in their mid-60s, and they're just not dancing. But I was hanging out with them at their place one time, and I was like, you know, I'd, it'd be cool if you guys would, you know, it'd be cool to see you dance at the party. And they're like, well, I mean, my parents are great. They're like, they're always up for anything. Okay, sure. I'm like, okay, well, maybe I need to teach you a dance. And so I realized very quickly that my mom has a little rhythm, but my dad has zero rhythm. So I was like, okay, we got to really reduce this down to the easiest dance I know, the Cupid Shuffle. It, the song tells you what to do. To the right, to the right, to the right, right? And so I'm like, I'm going to teach you guys to Cupid Shuffle. And then we'll Cupid Shuffle together at the wedding. It's going to be so much fun. And as I started to teach my dad the Cupid Shuffle, he was very mechanical about it. Like he danced like he was angry at the earth. And, his, and his he was always looking at the ground. Like he wanted to make sure his feet were in the right spot. And then the kick part was even worse. Like, like he didn't really have it. And so we had to do way more practice for the Cupid Shuffle than I thought we were going to have to do. But he did it. And then he came to the wedding. And I knew that, like, they, I think he and my mom had to take my grandmother home early. So they weren't going to stay till the end. So early on, I went to the DJ. I'm like, hey, can you make sure you get the Cupid Shuffle in earlier? And I told them, come on out. We'll, we'll do the Cupid Shuffle together. And so uh, DJ puts it on. And there's my mom and my dad. And, of course, my parents' friends got some video of it, which is just phenomenal. It's just great. Just My mom's having fun. I'm fun. And my dad is, like, in a torture chamber. Like, huh? Oh, yeah. You know, he's, but he's focused. We got done, and he like, it was great. And a month later, they were volunteering with their church, and their church volunteers with a uh, developmentally challenged adult camp that happens in the summer on the west side of the state. And so they went over there, and as part of the camp, they ended with a party. It was their, it was their prom. And so my parents were volunteers. I think they were serving punch at the prom. And wouldn't you know that at the prom a certain song came on. And my dad's like, huh, the Cupid Shuffle. 
And so he runs out there. Right? And he called me after. He's like, hey, they played the Cupid Shuffle. We did it at the primary. I was like, I bet you that was a sight to see. Now, when you're dancing at a party, there are four takes you can have. One is if you think you're a good dancer and you're like, everybody should be looking at me. Check me out. Form a circle around. I'm going to pull some moves out here. <laughs> right? Like, you can have that. Everybody look at me because I'm so good. The second that you can take is, Nobody look at me. I don't have any rhythm. Please don't, you know, like, please no one pay attention to the fact that I'm dancing. I'm not worth being a part of this. The third you can have is, oh my gosh, did you see how terrible that dancer was? Did you see that? Or the fourth one is, look at this. We're at a party. How great is this? We're dancing. We're, we're stepping to the right four times in unison. How crazy is that? We're celebrating something amazing. Those are the four things you can do when you're dancing. And if you take that fourth mindset into your life, what you'll find is you stop looking at yourself or others, but instead you will be looking at the things that God's doing. God is constantly working around you, and he's begging for you to notice that he's amazing. Because when you are in awe of something, you're drawn to it. When you are in awe of God, you move toward it.